Ken Wilber, how you doing, hey, man? Danny. So good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah. So today, uh, what we're going to be doing is actually picking up a conversation uh, from where we left it off last month. Um, and just to kind of catch everyone up, last month, what we did was we had an amazing three-hour conversation about integral epistemology. Right. And this was, this was really cool, Ken, because we actually went through, while well, you went through, all the major dozen or so major schools of epistemology right. and sort of talked about what their major contributions were, what their limitations right. were. And it was such a fascinating conversation. Uh, and today we have a couple of follow-up questions okay. um, to, to, to sort of add into the mix. Sure. And um, I was thinking a couple things, a couple of housekeeping items before we jump into the sort of the main course today. Sure. Um, I just want to let people know, this is actually really, really exciting. Ken, when you and I do our next episode of The Ken Show, the Grace and Grit movie will have been released. Yeah. It's coming out on June 4th. And yeah. um, this, is, this is really, really exciting. I mean, we've been, we've been sort of uh, waiting for this movie for a very long time. It's been a right. long time coming. And I imagine for you, it's sort of a, a, a bittersweet experience seeing this. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Sebastian just recently came up here. Sebastian Siegel, who's the writer and director of the um, film. He came up here and brought a copy so I could actually see it for the first time. Oh, great. And so we sat and watched it. And what was so interesting is that this is a movie about a very intense period of my life. And so there are people actually playing me on the screen and people playing Treya and all the other people that were in our lives. And so I thought, well, this might be a little awkward to have to watch something that, like this, especially in front of the guy who you know, was responsible for a lot of it. Mm -hmm. um, but I was, really impressed, I have to say. Um, the actress that played Treya is Mena Suvari, and she was just terrific. I thought she hit every aspect of Treya just right from beginning to end. Um, and I thought she really did a terrific job. Um, and the same is true of the guy that played me. Um, Stuart Townsend. Mm -hmm. um, and so on balance, I think it's a really good movie. And I've, I'm not going to be embarrassed at all by having it be out there. Right. Um, so that's very cool. Awesome. Well, I, I can't wait. to. I haven't seen it yet. I've had a lot yeah. of people ask me, assuming that I've seen it, that I have some special access and no unfortunately I have no special access to the film um but it sounds amazing I think that uh you know you saying you know the positive things that you've that you've made about it is I mean I can't there's no one more qualified yeah. <laughs> to be to criticize this movie than you so I'm right. really really happy that you yeah. are happy with it yeah. um so just to let folks know June 4th it's coming out cool. I believe I hear it's going to be streaming on Apple TV um, I would have to confirm that, but that was sort of the word on the street, as well as sort of a theater release for the people who are comfortable going to theaters right now. Right. Um, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a big deal. And I really can't wait uh, to have the next show with you and we can sort of right. talk about how people are receiving it and how it's getting right. out there and all that. Right. Um, so awesome. I'm, I, I think we're all very, very excited. Cool. 
And then the second piece is, uh, you know, a bit of a bit of sad news. Um, I just wanted to take a moment to appreciate uh, our dear friend Junpo Kelly Roshi, who uh, about a week ago succumbed to his Parkinson's and passed away. And uh, man, this this guy was a legend. Yeah. I mean, a, a brilliant teacher, brilliant Zen teacher an all around just amazing human being. And man, his stories are just so yeah. funny and rich and insightful and transformative and crazy at times. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to, to spend a moment just to, to remember one of our, uh, one of our favorite teachers in the integral right. community. Do you have that little piece I wrote? About? Yeah, let me actually, I can, I can dig that up real quick. Uh, let's see here. Here we go. Junpo was an extraordinary human being. When I was growing up, I used to read books about Zen Buddhism, and I always developed a somewhat overblown childish picture of what a Zen master was like. Above all else, it was a deeply heroic, almost supernatural picture and replete with amazing superhuman traits. It was, of course, a picture no real human being could ever live up to. That is, until I met Junpo Roshi. He somehow managed to fit perfectly the picture I had formed. And why not? He was, after all, representing Zen, which, as I would later understand it, was a religion that managed to exemplify the very best and deepest of the perennial philosophy, which I understood was humanity's hope for a bright and enlightened future. But come what may, I came to adore the man, and he never let me down. He was incredibly intelligent, deeply caring and compassionate, enormously courageous, and had a very, very deep streak of likability and an outrageous sense of humor. And as I happily came to see, he embodied the deepest and best aspects of Zen, even matching my childhood images. We will all miss him, none more than I. Yeah. That's really sweet, Ken. And I just want to, you know, let folks know that uh, a couple years ago, several years ago, you did uh, just an amazing dialogue with Junpo. Uh, which after his passing, um, I ended up releasing for free. Um, right. People can check that out. They can find it on Integral Life. It's called A Heart Blown Open. It's also available on our podcast. Uh, you can go to SoundCloud and search for Everyone is Right. That's our podcast. And all six parts um, have been made available for free. And again, just what an incredible story. What a life. What a legacy. And uh, we'll miss you, Junpo. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, let's jump into it. Yeah. Um, okay. So we've got, let's see here, about five or so questions. Yeah, right. And I figured we would start with a big one. This is a big one for a lot of people in our audience. This is something right. a lot of people um, have a hard time, I think, wrapping their integral minds around. Right. And that's Marxism. Right. And basically the question is, what role does Marxist epistemology play in a larger, more comprehensive integral epistemology? And I'll just read the question here, Ken. Sure. Marxism, also known as dialectical materialism, continues to exert a tremendous influence in the world, both in terms of pro-Marxist ideas on the left, as well as anti-Marxist positions on the right. One of the simplest ways to define Marxist epistemology is the following statement, quote, examine any alleged state of affairs as related to and distinguished from a total environment, and you will know whether or not the sentence alleging that state of affairs is true. It's a mouthful. Uh, what are the positive contributions of Marxism that we want to include in a more integral epistemology? And what are the unhealthy or negative limitations that we want to avoid? 
Right. Well, it, it's, it's interesting because when you say total environment, then for Marxism, that means the total material, the sum total of material that's surrounding you. And one of the problems with that is it's a dialectical materialism. So it wants to track the sum total of material mm -hmm. as it develops and evolves. One of the important things that Marxism did throughout the world is it kept the developmental view alive because what it did was particularly coming in the wake of Hegelianism, which Marxism was in, in a sense, it said that Marx turned Hegel on his head, which meant that where Hegel had all of these geists and spiritual realities stacked on top of the material, Marx sort of turned it over and had all these material realities that were the foundation of everything. Um, the, but what they did do at that, particularly at that time in our own history, is they started to notice historical unfoldings. And so Marxism particularly was acutely aware of the different stages that the material substratum of civilization had gone through. And we would, using Gebser's terms, we would call them archaic stage, magic stage, mythic stage, rational, pluralistic, and integral. And Marx didn't have exactly those stages, but he had ones that were um, roughly essentially similar. And so one of the important points about Marx was that they did keep a developmental view alive in the study of history. Now, the only problem with that is when you talk about the total environment or we talk about the material environment, it's what is the relation of the right-hand quadrants to the left-hand quadrants? And we'll talk about this as we go on when we talk about, for example, where is mathematics and things like that. Mm -hmm. But what's essentially difficult is determining just what mental states manifest as material realities? Because that becomes an important question to ask. So if you think, for example, if what you're gonna represent is gonna be something that you can see in the behavior of the external material world, then you wanna make sure that all the important mental realities can be read in an exterior state or else you're gonna leave it out. So just take even Maslow's needs, physiological safety, belongingness, self-esteem, self-actualization, self-transcendence. Now, which of those can you see in the material environment? Well, physiological, yes, because they're pretty much at the lowest of our, the great chain sort of matter and itself and material needs and hunger, food, warmth, and so on. Um, and safety, well, perhaps you could see safety to some degree. Belongingness, well, I can see how you could take some 
behavioral acts as if they were helping bring together a community and the sort of belongingness. But when you start getting the self-esteem, mm. let alone self-actualization, what are you going to see? So if you're not acknowledging that self-actualization is part of reality, then you're not going to select for it at all. You're not going to have any parts of society that are acknowledging some of these higher stages, which are, are very difficult to see interiorly anyway. How do you actually track that you have a self-actualization going on, let alone a self-transcendence? So if you can't track those in the world of dialectical materialism, then you're going to leave them out. And that is unfortunately the problem with what Marxism does. Mm. It's where it falls down in what it can actually recognize as being part of the total environment or the part of the total dialectical materialism. Because if there, like you say, if there are any interior realities that don't fit into an obvious behavioral, exterior, material fashion, then you're just going to leave them out. And that is unfortunately what happens with Marxist thought. Um, and so it became very, very difficult to um, include higher interior realities in any Marxist culture. So when you think about like when the Soviet Union would produce its exemplars of a high human development, they were always athletes. And, right. they, and they were very good at producing and getting a lot of gold medals and the Olympics and all of that. Well, you can see what an athlete is doing because it's, it's sort of working with physiological needs. And those were the only things that were considered as being a high example of growth in the exterior world. So they were great at producing wonderful um, athletes, but not great at producing self-actualized, let alone self-transcending individuals. Right. And that's a real problem. So um, the good and the bad, the good, as I said, is that they actually did keep at least a notion of generalized development alive. And even though they couldn't track all the higher stages of that in the exterior world, they did have a general understanding of four or five stages that um, a civilization went through. Um, it, they were often just stages that were described in terms of some geopolitical exterior location. Like there was a stage you would call the Asian stage of development and the early European stage and then the middle European stage and so on. And when you said, well, what does that mean? They would describe the physical dimensions of these different cultures. But since all four quadrants do go together, if, if you're gonna get a lower right physical stage right, it's gonna have some correspondence with the general 
left-hand interior stages. But if you don't have a clear recognition of what those actual interior stages are, then as I said, the downside of Marxism is that it, they just get left out. Mm. There's no way to track exactly what you mean. And so things like self-esteem, self-actualization, self-transcendence, you just don't find those as any sort of ideal in any Marxist culture anywhere in the world. Um, so that's, that's a problem. The way that I tend to think of Marxist thought, because basically pretty much every major philosophy in existence, we have some version of it that's included in the integral mm -hmm. stage. We talked about that last month when we went through the various types of epistemologies and talked about the limitations of those, which we tried to leave out. And then we talked about the positive aspects, which we try to include. So I tend to see Marxism as basically a lower right quadrant measurement. Yeah. And to the extent that you're tracking the lower right quadrant, which is the exterior of collectives, so that's the materialism part of it. Um, that is an um, important segment that you want to include. Now, the way integral defines matter, however, is this is the second major definition of matter that's been used historically. And the first definition is if you look at any great chain of being, the Christian version of the great chain is matter to body, to mind, to soul, to spirit. It, without any exceptions at all, every version of the great chain that was created in history, matter is the very lowest level of the great chain. So it's matter, and that just means dead, insentient, material stuff goes to body, which means living biological bodies, goes to mind, which means concepts, images, rules, and so on, goes to soul, which is generally means an illuminated, transcendental part of oneself, goes to spirit, which is the ultimate ground and transcendental highest level of the great chain. Um, so even though in those early civilizations, let's say 2000 years ago, where they had already discovered things like Satori or actual transcendental experiences, they could have a Satori experience, which if you're just looking at the brain, since the brain was just thought of as a material object, then that's fine. If they were to put it on a level, they would put it on the material level. And even though they're having a Satori in the upper left, which is some sort of, even if it's a, a transcendental spiritual experience, mm -hmm. They couldn't see that every time they had a Satori, there were actual changes in the physical brain. 
because they didn't have like microscopes. Um, and so if you look at all of the areas that many scientists today think of as material, there are things like things that can be seen with microscopes, electron microscopes. Um, or they're, if they're big things like galaxies that exist in some faraway planetary system, we didn't have telescopes that could see that. So what starts to happen as we get into the modern era and our technology continues to grow is that we develop the means of seeing smaller areas of matter as well as larger areas. And so that gave uh, eventually the downside of that was the rise of scientific materialism, mm -hmm. which would fit with the dialectical materialism and that they both think that the only thing that's real is matter. Right. And the reason they're thinking that is because they can track all these changes going on in the left-hand quadrants, whether they're getting very small or getting huge, they think because they can track all of those changes, that those are the only things that are real is the changes in material. And so if you look at consciousness studies today, for example, at least half of the experts on consciousness studies think that consciousness is nothing but the product of a brain neurophysiological process. That's the pure scientific materialism. But they believe that and they believe that because we've got so much, so many examples of the actual correlations between what happens whenever we're having a left, upper left hand experience and that the correlations that that will cause in the upper right physiological brain. So matter in that condition doesn't mean the lowest level of the great chain. It's the exterior correlate of every level in the great chain. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the ways that we work in scientific materialism, everything and materialism in that sense means anything that can be seen, photographed or videotaped. And so if you look at anything in the right-hand quadrant, it can be videotaped or photographed and including all the way down to electrons. Now we can spot those with electron microscopes. And it also includes anything big such as galaxies, um, hundreds of thousands of light years away from here. Mm -hmm. But everything in the right-hand quadrant can be seen and nothing in the left-hand quadrants can be seen. So if you take something that's arising in mind or emotions, um, you can't point to those. I mean, point to love or we're having mutual understanding right now. That's a left-hand quadrant. Point to mutual understanding. You can't put your finger on anything in the left-hand quadrant, but you can put your finger on anything in the right-hand quadrants. Right. So that understanding alone has been, at least I think, a fairly large contribution to modern thought and turn, helping us understand, just wait a minute, scientific materialism has so much data 
to support it, how does that fit in with left-hand quadrant things? And we go, well, it fits actually quite specifically. Um, but you can't reduce left hand to right hand, nor can you reduce right hand to left hand. Right. So that's important. So for Marxism, we think that is a materialism. And so it's in a right hand quadrant and it's studies essentially the collective aspects of material systems. So we'd say that Marxism is a lower right quadrant uh, phenomenon, basically. Um, and that makes it important, but it also stops us from reducing the other three quadrants to that quadrant, right. which is important. Right. Um, so that's Marxist thought. And you're right, it still has an extraordinary impact on the world's thought. Um, yeah, Ken, thank you for that. You know, it, se it seems like Marxism is one of those terms that we kind of have to carefully define what we mean by it every time it's used in conversations like this, because, you know, for, for us right now, we're talking about Marxist epistemology. Right. Which is a little bit different than the sorts of constructs that that epistemology has produced, which right. we've seen in Soviet Union, we've seen in Venezuela, we've, we've seen, you know, multiple failings of Marxism. And therefore that I think for particularly a lot of people in the West, it kind of puts Marxist epistemology itself into the shadow. Right. Right. We don't trust sort of the, the products and the constructs that come out of it. Right. Um, but I think what you're pointing to is actually something really, really important, which is that, you know, when we're looking at all of these different epistemologies that we did last month, Marxism is really one of the very few that focuses so much on the lower right quadrant and all the right. sort of the interrelations that exist there. And, you know, I think that that Marxist epistemology has, there's a thread of it that sort of has woven through, you know, many of our conversations in the past. Sure. We talked before about how, you know, for example, how culture and consciousness can change actually very, very quickly when the lower right quadrant changes very quickly. Right. You know, for example, moving from sort of the old school television based media age to the right. social media age, information right. moves differently now. And, a, right. and I think a Marxist an analysis would, you know, sort of really prioritize how important that is. Exactly. Particularly when you realize the relationship between all four quadrants. Yeah. So you're not tempted to reduce the culture that's being wrapped up intentionally with the techno economic base right. that's supporting that culture. And so as long as we recognize how the four quadrants fit together, so we aren't reducing the three other quadrants to just the lower right quadrant, then we can indeed track the changes that are occurring in the techno-economic base. Right. And Marx actually made the difference between the technological substratum, or what he called the base, and the superstructure of culture and religion and, and all of that. The superstructure depended on the base. And when the base would change, that would have a direct impact on the superstructure. Mm. So it would impact e economics and religion and culture and so on. And that's still largely true. And that's one of the things that, that's why it's important to track and continue tracking the techno-economic structures as they unfold. 
And it's also important to do that because what's required to produce a new techno-economic structure is first of all, it's generally a near genius level comes up with some new techno-economic base thing. Mm -hmm. Like you don't have to be smart enough to create a computer yourself, but somebody does have to create a computer. But once that's done, because a computer is an artifact and the techno-economic structures are all artifacts, when somebody else produces that artifact, that you can go out and just buy a computer or get a computer and whatever your intellectual smarts or dumbness, you can use a computer. You don't have to create it yourself. So that's why techno-economic base always runs ahead of the culture because somebody really smart to produce a new novel and creative techno-economic structure has to be smart enough to do that. But once they've produced it, any idiot can use it. And you just nailed the problem of our era right there. Exactly. I mean, it takes a lot of genius to come up with a smartphone, but every idiot on the planet can use it. That's it. That's it. And, that, and, and so if you're tracking how techno-economic structures impact culture, you're going to see that they often run ahead of the average level of development in culture. Mm. And that's both why Marx could, was interested in tracking development because he could see no matter how poorly he understood it, he understood that it was important because these things move at different rates. And that's exactly what's one of the important things of Marxism to Mm. keep in mind and to track. So this is this is this is really helpful and it's really rich and very relevant right now ken like for example um you know the state of texas just banned uh critical race theory yeah from their education systems and you know we can have and we probably will have a whole talk about critical race theory um i'm a little bit uneasy with you know the state uh literally censoring certain schools of thought i mean that's this is like literal first amendment stuff but you know we can we can talk about that whole sort of bag later but you know, when it comes to something like critical race theory, um, you know, I am critical of critical race theory, not because it's Marxist, which it is, it's sort of unabashedly, proudly Marxist. I mean, they listed among their, their core sort, you know what I mean, influences. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not critical of it because it has, you know, that Marxist piece in it. I'm critical because it's bringing along with it all of the pathologies of Marxism that you just described in terms of minimizing everything to material realities, or in this case, you know, uh, skin color, ethnicity, and so forth. It it sort of debases our understanding of what the lower right quadrant is. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the same way that a lot of people today use scientific materialism or something they've heard said by scientific materialism and it just sort of seems to make sense to them because first Mm -hmm. of all so many people actually adopt the scientific materialist view but it also just sort of makes a certain sense in terms of oh well when i'm thinking it's actually my brain doing something so they hear 
something about that. And when they're accepting what scientific materialism says, they're not just accepting the true parts of it, they're accepting all the reductionism that it mm. includes. And that's the problem with Marxism right now is the same thing. Right. Certain people will tend to believe it because when, first of all, when you look around, all you see is matter. So if you're not that intense a thinker, you're gonna go, oh, dialectical materialism. If that describes what I'm thinking, yeah, I'm a dialectical materialist. So, but they're not only buying the true parts of dialectical materialism, which we, some of which we've talked about, but they're accepting the whole reductionistic aspect of Marxism as well. Right. Um, and that is really problematic. Yeah. Ken, is it your sense that um, the integral project itself could actually benefit from a little bit more, let's just say healthy integrated Marxism? I mean, I'm thinking, for example, we often talk about the stages of development. And of course, when we're talking about them, we're largely pointing to upper left and lower left, really mainly upper left, but of course yeah. this resonates in the lower left way too. A lot of people out there, um, you know, who sort of are coming into the integral project, they, they will notice, one of the first things they'll notice is that, you know, integral doesn't seem to have a very strong power analysis or a class analysis where we actually start looking at some of the exterior factors and conditions and circumstances that are perpetuating sort of the the entire conveyor belt right and the, the left hand side where some people you know we've talked about this before ken there's actually a video of you from like 20 maybe uh 25 years ago or so it's an old video where you were actually talking about the, you know the question why is the integral project so damn white and you kind of went into a little bit of a marxist analysis there right. in terms of you know, the people who have the, you know, disposable income and why right. certain people have more disposable income. And it is sort of ripe for a healthy, integrated Marxist analysis. Yeah. Yeah. I used to, um, I was actually fairly influenced when I first started building integral theory by a lot of Marxist thinkers. Mm. And one of the reasons was, particularly during the 60s and 70s, if you are smart intellectual, particularly in Europe, then you tended to be a Marxist because that was sort of the most advanced edge of thinking at that time. And I remember um, even when I wrote my first book, Spectrum of Consciousness, somebody said, well, can you give me just a short description of what you're trying to do with that book? And I had just read that the Frankfurt School, which is, oh, it was a large school of scholars from Frankfurt, Germany, um, that included people like Horkheimer and Adorno and up to the 60s, um, included people like um, Marcuse and Habermas was considered um, the leading member of the Frankfurt School when I was first starting out. And he had explained what the Frankfurt School was trying to do was to integrate Freud and Marx. And of course, those were two of the big influences on me. So I would say I'm trying to integrate Freud, Marx, and Buddha, mm. which would sort of cover all the major areas that you know had to be touched upon. Yep. Um, and that's um, 
it's still true in terms of my own thinking, although I would increasingly subtract out of Marxism the stuff that I thought was just reductionistic and wrong. Yeah. <clears throat> but I could um, probably write a fairly decent book right now that would address those issues. And I probably should give some serious thought to that. Yeah, maybe you should. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. We just gave Ken some homework. Well, and speaking of your writings on Marxism, Ken, I've got, um, I've got an excerpt here from Sex, Ecology, Spirituality okay. uh, that I'd love to read if you're okay with that. Sure. It's a little bit lengthy. Um, okay. It's six paragraphs. And, you know, this is, this is, these are Ken Wilber paragraphs. So, you know, they're uh, high protein. Right. Um, but let me just start uh, and just okay. give me kind of a, a few minutes to get through this. So you say, but the rise of rationality although it generated the world space in which all peoples could be recognized as free and equal subjects of the law and politically free subjects as citizens, it did not produce or has not yet produced transformations of a global and not just national nature that would seek to socially empower the world in a non-coercive and non-dominating fashion that would be driven by a recognition of what we all have in common as human beings and not what we have in common merely as believers in a particular and divisive mythology or as members of a particular ethnocentric tribe, however much those differences would also be cherished and honored in a world-centric context. With one major exception, the only serious global social movement in all of history to date, and this was 1995, I believe, uh, has been the international labor movement Marxism, which had one great enduring and legitimate strength and one altogether fatal weakness. The strength was that it discovered a common trait that all humans possess, regardless of race, creed, nationality, mythology, or gender. We all have to secure our bodily survival through social labor of one sort or another. We all have to eat. And thus social labor puts us all in the same boat, makes us all world citizens. This movement was genuine enough and serious enough and made such an immediate good sense to so many people that it set off the first modern globally intent revolutions from Russia to China to South America. Such for its genuinely noble strengths. Its fatal weakness was that it did not just ground higher cultural endeavors in the economic or material realm, the physiosphere. It did not just ground them in social labor and material exchange. It reduced them to that exchange reduced them to their lowest common denominator, reduced them to material productions and material values and material means with all higher product productions, especially spirituality, serving only as the opiate of the masses. In a nutshell, that movement did not just ground the newosphere in the physiosphere, which is vitally important because of compound individuality. It reduced the newosphere to the physiosphere, such an egregious reduction that it took evolution less than a mere century to begin to erase that mistake in earnest. This reductionistic thrust of Marxism, because quote, it could find no support in the real cosmos, had to be converted into a religious mythology and thus had to press its vision in an imperialistic fashion. And then just a couple paragraphs later, what is needed rather is a more integrative approach that works with our present historical actualities. A planetary culture will in effect have to deal with equitable material economic distribution in the physiosphere, the enduring concern of Marx, even if we reject his particular solutions and it will have to deal with sustainable ecological distribution in the biosphere, the enduring contribution of the greens. 
but it will have to go much further and deal specifically and non-reductionistically with the noosphere and its distributions and distortions. And it will have to do so with something other than reductionistic web of life theories if it is to freely engage the motivation of an entire globe. It will have to work towards specific theories of free noospheric exchange, including but transcending ecological concerns. Social labor could unite world citizens to the extent, but only to the extent that we all share matter in common. The Greens can unite world citizens to the extent, but only to the extent that we all share bodies in common. But it will take a vision logic movement of tremendous integrative power integral a perspectival as universal integral in order to unite world citizens on the centauric basis that we all share matter and bodies and minds in common, not to mention a spirit and a self prior to all of that. The Greens have produced a promising platform, but if it isn't any more than that, and it isn't so far neglecting noospheric exchange, then it will be merely snapped up by egoic rationality structures of capital production. And we will simply have McDonald's selling burgers in recyclable bags, which is nowhere near anything deserving to be called a planetary transformation. Yeah, that's, again, those are the two basic, the positive and negatives that I outlined there are essentially the same two that I've talked about here, which is the positive aspect is it did, in selecting materialism or social labor, it did select the lowest common denominator, but it was a common denominator. Mm -hmm. And that's why so many people tended to, to pick up on it fairly quickly. As I said, it seemed like it was making an enormous amount of good sense. And in a sense it was to the extent that it was talking about the things that human beings do share. Mm -hmm. And on the great chain of being, they do share matter in the first sense. Um, so that was the positive aspect of it. The negative aspect was that it, did, it didn't just share that level, it reduced everything to that level. And what's really the difficult part about that, as I sort of tried to outline it, is it's one thing to essentially reduce everything to the lower right quadrant let's say, or the, the material exteriors of something. But if you can't say exactly what interiors are getting represented in by those exteriors, because we, we understand that they both go together. But if you, if you can't understand the interiors that are going together with your exteriors, then that's wide open to leaving them out entirely, mm. which is reductionism. And that's what makes materialism in general so difficult. So even if you look at scientific materialism, will scientific materialists accept a self-transcendent state? Well, if they could find something in the brain that corresponds with self-transcendence, and some of them have, they called it actually call it the God spot. Mm -hmm. The, which laboratory wags have called the G spot. Um, but the, <laughs> the only one that, they were ever able to find. <laughs> right. So, but the point is how then, if a person has like a Satori and they have an experience of being one with the ground of all being, 
then the scientific materialist who looks at it doesn't report, oh, what's real is this person is experiencing the ground of all being. What's real is just a small section in the brain, which we call the God spot, that's getting lit up. So that doesn't even match the person's experience because they're going, wait a minute, I experienced the ground of all being. I didn't experience something the size of an apricot in my brain of just one individual. So that's, again, that's the problem with materialism. The thing is, of course, those are correlated. When you have a Satori, you'll have something going off in the brain. And it could indeed be occurring in a God spot. But you have to explain each quadrant on its own terms. And if you don't, then that's, you're definitely reducing the reality of a particular quadrant to the reality of another quadrant. And that's, the, that's what integral, it's one of the main things that it's here to fight. Right, right.